the most interesting radio show on planet Earth. The Weekend Variety Wireless on Radio Live. Good evening, everybody. Welcome to the Weekend Variety Wireless, the first spring edition, officially. And it did feel very, very springy today, just by happenstance. Don't worry, there will be the unexpected cold snap happening uh, later in September or maybe even October. One of the biggest signifiers in New Zealand of spring the flowering of our kofi trees. Oh, they're beautiful, aren't they? Just a big yellow bomb that just spreads throughout the country. There are some cracking places to see massive kofi explosions at this time of year. Kafia is one. We've got a kofi expert, Peter Lang. He's an expert about a lot of planty things. He's from Unitech in Auckland. Uh, one of our finest botanists and science communicators to celebrate spring. What Kofi get up to when you're not watching? And some interesting stories behind them. Did you know that a lot of people think they're really, really poisonous and get themselves in quite a tiz about it? Yeah, from time to time we have these weird, what, what I, I call Kofi pogroms, where do gooder people go in and chop down Kofi trees because they're 100% lethal to children. Mm. But in fact, no, they're not. And the same people will very happily ignore the melia trees that are planted all down the streets, you know, the Persian lilac. But now we've gone the other end of the spectrum. We chop the kofi trees out because they're lethal and we plant things that are actually lethal in their place. I mean, if I had a dollar for every Japanese wax tree I saw in schools, and that is really lethal and some people just touching it is enough to make them break out into kind of psoriasis. And the other thing that is ironic is how many karaka trees will you find in school grounds? And that is poisonous. Mm. Go figure. <laughs> so my view is leave the kofi alone. He actually has some damn good advice on what sort of kofi to grow as well, because they can be difficult if you get the wrong one for the wrong place. So do be listening to Peter DeLang, botanist extraordinaire, I would not hesitate to say. He's on after around, oh, I don't know, the 10, 20 mark after human statistics with Jonathan Dodd, looking at cyberbullying. Well, look, I want to give you a warning, folks, for tomorrow night. It's a complex story, but I think really succinctly, clearly told. I felt much, much more informed than the kind of scattering of ideas that I had about one of our most famous names in New Zealand history, Turoparaha, uh, sometimes called the Napoleon of New Zealand. He went on this migration slash warpath uh, in the early 1800s with his Ngati Toa uh, outfit. Uh, tomorrow night, this is explained and the story told with Jared Hindmarsh. A fresh outsider's tale with Jared Hindmarsh tomorrow. It is a difficult listen. So is this a difficult... Uh, it will be a difficult listen in the end. Here's a little sample. Tarapraha was swift. Gone was any sort of diplomatic endeavouring to settle its um, people peacefully on new lands 
he rose up with the absolute destruction on his mind. And many stories have been documented about what happened, but he just went on an absolute bloodbath with local tribes. And basically, it slowed him down. He was so incessant and thorough how he went about avenging this. Basically, he had wiped out the opposition in one go. Kitties, if you're listening, or maybe don't. That chief who had insulted him and his wife, he brought them back to Kapiti. He cut open his wife's stomach, pulled out her innards, pegged them out and made the chief dance around for two weeks while he killed him slowly with a fern root pounder. The story of Taropraha tomorrow, another outsider's tale. And I would like to tell you there's an outsider's archive. I think well over a hundred now are sitting in there just waiting for you to listen to them. And you can take them home and listen anytime you like. Download on the podcast. The Weekend Variety Wireless is podcast hour by hour. And the podcast for the Outsiders is hour four Sunday night. That's after 11 o'clock tomorrow night. Oh, one other thing. Uh, if you're waiting for Grant Smithies and another album from the class of 1978. Man, it's been fun. It really has. Uh, and we're still going on. But we're taking a bit of a break uh, to f- refill up the Shipwreck Tales archive with uh, tales from Dom- John McChrystal, uh, p- particular Shipwreck Tales that have um, missed muster in a transformation between one web format and another. So it's the easiest way for us to do it. And, um, you know, we'll do it carefully one by one. The tale of the Royal Charter. More than 400 died off the coast of Wales in plain view of those watching from the cliffside. Eek. All right. Science this hour. Grant's, uh, Grant Christie with us uh, with astronomy in a bit. But next up, Emily Park. Who are you? Yeah, that's a question in science. She'll talk about that. You're tuned in to the Weekend Variety Wireless. Science Report this week with philosophy of science lecturer at Auckland University, Emily Park. Hello, Emily. Hello. Lovely to see you again. Um, Now, this study that's had a bit of coverage this week, uh, no amount of alcohol is good for you at all, and this comes on the back of decades of thinking a couple of glasses of red wine could be quite good for you. So, what is the deal? Yeah, indeed. So this has been hitting the news. Any amount of alcohol is bad for you. And I think many people's reaction to this is this is terrible. Um, So the study came out in The Lancet last week and uh, it's open access so anyone can go read it. And it's actually not a new study, first of all. So it's a meta-analysis of a bunch of studies that have been done Mm. before and a bunch of data. And for those that don't know, The Lancet, reputable medical journal. Right. Um, So the study looked at people in 195 countries, including New Zealand, data over a few decades and um, almost 600 other studies and found that just one drink a day increases the chances of health problems. They looked at a whole set of, um, I think, 23 different health problems from cancer to um, suicide to car accidents and so forth. 
And um, the conclusion of the study was that the safest level of drinking is zero. So those were the two findings that got reported oh. on the most. Right. Um, interestingly, though, so I guess the reason I wanted to talk about it was to apply a bit of skepticism to that and say, well, maybe it's not so bad yeah. if you're interested in drinking, um, even moderately. So they found that one drink a day increases the chances of health problems, but the actual numbers there in the original paper are um, one drink a day for a year increases your chance of those 23 health problems I mentioned from 914 in 100,000 to 918 in 100,000. Oh, for heaven's freak. Yeah, right. So it's quite a big but. Double nothing is nothing sort of scenario. Yeah, so there is a mild increase. But the other interesting thing about the study is, um, like I said, it's a meta-analysis of previous data, but it's also completely um, observational and at the population level. So it's based on sales of alcohol in these countries. They controlled for uh, tourism, so it's meant to be just about the people that live in the countries. But um, because it's this massive country-scale data, they could control for age and sex and country, but not for things like smoking or um, healthcare access. Right, healthcare access, um, you know, poverty level and so forth. Right. So it's it's a lot of correlations that they've found. And as we know, correlation isn't causation necessarily. Um, Right. So it's quite an interesting study. You know, there's different, there's a lot of nice graphs of drinking levels in different countries and so forth that are interesting to think about, but I think the conclusion that uh, this means nobody should drink anything ever is unwarranted. Yeah, a bit alarmist. Yeah. Uh, those That very, very small difference, 914 to 918 and 100,000, is it? Yeah. Um, can they actually pair that away from the background noise, noise of statistical um, wobble? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, it's... And again, that's also across all the countries, so that's the sort of general figure. Um, They did, in the paper, they go and look at a lot more detail and, um, you know, there's more specific things to say about specific contexts. So I think Russia, for example, had the highest incidence of death among males. Um, Yeah, and... uh, Scotland will be very disappointed. Right. (laughs) It's not a contest. (laughs) Um, But, but, you know, it's worth pointing out also that... um, a message that this study again confirmed is that regular heavy drinking is bad for you. Never. That's, uh, yeah, right. unfortunately. Okay. Um, Should we go to the pub? This is great right. news. Thanks. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but I still want to know whether, um, you know, this idea that one drink a day can protect you from heart attack or stroke and so forth. We keep hearing that, like you said, one glass of red wine. Yeah. And uh, I still haven't seen anything really convincing about that. Apparently there was some major study of that in the U.S. that was shut down earlier this year because they found out that the alcohol companies were actually funding it. Oh, really? Yeah. Uh-uh. Just a slight conflict of interest right. there. Mm. All right. Uh, who are we? That's a fair question, isn't it? Indeed. We need a philosopher. Uh, is there a philosopher in the house? Why, yes. Who are we? Emily? Explain. You're talking about the microbiome, the bacteria that make up us. Yeah, so this uh, this is a fun one to talk about. It came out earlier this year, but um, a paper in PLOS Biology, which is another open access journal by recent colleagues called um, How the Microbiome Challenges Our Concept of Self. So interesting, it's in a biology journal, but really it's more of a philosophy piece. Mm-hmm. Um, looking at microbiome research, which 
is something I've talked about on here a few times in the past and uh, quite buzzy in the news today. Mm. So we're learning more and more about the microbes that live on us and in us and how they affect us. And what they argued in this paper is that uh, those microbes living on us and in us define who we are as humans. So quite an interesting provocative claim. And they look at some uh, biological senses of who we are as humans, like our immune systems or our genes or our brains, and argue that the microbiome affects all of those and then make some quite big claims about how, um, therefore, who we are as humans is determined by microbiomes. And mm. they have this uh, interesting figure in the paper where they say that this should all culminate in what they call microbial humanities, sort of overhauling the way we study what it means to be human in light of microbiome insights. Right. Um, there are more bacterial cells than human cells in the human body, I understand. Yeah, I think that's still... I saw something recently that there aren't as many more as we thought. I don't oh. remember the exact numbers, but there are a lot. Depends who you test. Right, I'm sure. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and how does it affect our brain, our thinking? Because that's included in there. Yeah, I mean, there's there's been a lot of studies recently looking at how at the effects of the microbiome on cognition and behavior and um, like a big one about depression came out recently. Interestingly, a lot of those um, are reported in the headlines as, you know, microbiome, gut microbiome linked to depression, say, and the studies themselves are often mouse studies. Um, oh, right, yeah. So we've talked before about, you know, how do you infer from mice to humans? Sometimes you can, but sometimes it's a not as bit. clear. It might, it's intriguing, but it's not a slam dunk. Yeah, and many of the studies, um, the intervention that they do is giving a probiotic, for example, which um, we, we take to be affecting our microbiome in one way or another, but it's not quite the same as showing the specific microbe in us is definitely causally related to depression. Right. Um, so yeah, the this is something I'm working on in um, another research project with another philosopher called Maureen O'Malley thinking about, um, and Kate Lynch, who are both at the University of Sydney, thinking about um, causal claims in microbiome research and are they really founded or not. Right. But, yeah, this, this microbiome piece that I mentioned is quite interesting because it sort of... Um, it asks these big questions about who we are as a species. So I'm skeptical that... Um, there is anything like the impact on who we are as humans that mm. they claim but I also think it's not totally obvious what we mean when we ask who we are as humans. Mm -hmm. Well take it all into account the more we know the better. Yeah. Um, Toxoplasma gondii that's a fabulous thing <coughs> just to say. Toxoplasma gondii uh, it's a bacteria it makes you drive badly apparently. You get it from cat poo um, it's somehow, you know, you don't need much. Right. So, and, and cats have it, and uh, it makes mice... Um, oh, right. This is why pregnant women aren't supposed to change cat boxes. Oh, really? Yeah, I remember hearing about that. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, and, and you get it, and you, it makes you a bit clumsy and a bad driver, apparently. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. But see, at least that's a claim about a specific microbe yeah. and not the entire microbiome. Yeah, true. I was on a... Um, Oh, look, if you're eating dinner, folks, just turn this off now. Um, I had a, well, I was on an antibiotic regime, mm -hmm. and one of them must have killed some really important bacteria in my gut because for about a week, doing a job where I had to concentrate, I had an ant's nest up my ass. Yeah, antibiotics. It was unbelievable. 
ant's nest in bum. Yeah. That's what it felt like. They yeah. bit. Yeah, it's terrible. I mean, that's why they often give you probiotics along with antibiotics. Wow. But again, I mean, there's, you know, there's all these pills and potions and probiotics now that are, you know, in microbiome diet cookbooks and so forth that right. are uh, mm. meant to be changing everything about us. But we're still learning. Okay, a double-blind peer review of scientific papers is seeing an increased representation from female authors. Good. Yeah, so um, peer review is the sort of gatekeeping process for publishing scientific papers or all research, because, uh, of course, not all research is science. Um, but, you know, papers get sent to journals and then the editors choose experts to peer review them and then they get published or not based on the reviewer's uh -huh. recommendations. Um and there's two ways this can go. So they can be single blind, which means the authors don't know who reviewed their papers, or they can be double blind, which means the authors don't know who reviewed their papers and the reviewers don't know whose papers they're reviewing. And um, different journals have different practices um, depending on resources and um, depending on all sorts of things, I suppose. But there's been a number of studies looking at bias, gender bias, and other sorts of bias in this process. And um, there's an interesting study that came out quite a while ago, but that's been followed up in other work. Uh, the one I was just reading about recently was in uh, Trends in Ecology and Evolution in 2008. They looked at 900 papers published in a journal called Behavioral Ecology, which switched from the single blind to the double blind peer review system. And before and after the switch, um, afterwards, they found an 8% increase in papers with female authors and no. an 8% decrease with male authors. Wow. And that's proportion, that's not number. Yeah, it's really significant. Shouldn't it always be double blind? I mean, that sounds like the scientific process, and this is what we're talking about. Well, I think so, too. I'm surprised at or how ev many... Or every author should be called an ambiguous name, Robin. <laughs> right. I mean, it's really surprising how many journals still do um, single blind yeah. in philosophy as well, um, and I'm sure in plenty of other disciplines. So, I mean, you know, there's issues like, uh, yeah, resources and so forth, but I don't see why it wouldn't all be double blind. In any case, this... Um, the recommendation of this paper was uh, you should always be double blind. Yeah. And I found there's a few more papers that have come out in the last year looking at other sorts of bias. So, um, you know, famous authors or authors from fancy institutions get their papers published a lot more proportionally with single blind systems. Right. So, you know, we think of journal publication as ideally where objective science gets reported. And it's interesting to think that all this bias can play a role. Yeah. And interestingly, um, very few journals do what's called triple blind review, which is where the editor making the final decision also doesn't know who the author was. Oh, I thought that might be you don't even see the research. Yeah, right. You just make a decision. <laughs> <laughs> that would be problematic for other reasons, that but would. perhaps unbiased. Because all they're looking at and all they have to assess for peer review is the research. Ideally, yeah. Yeah, but the whole issue is, um, and you know, they've done lots of other studies like this in business where you show someone the exact same CV but change the name from, say, John to Mary and they'll assess it differently. Mm, yeah. So, yeah. similar issue, and I think we'd all like to think we're not biased, but... Mm. Emily Park, Philosophy, University of Auckland. That sounds like University Challenge, doesn't it? Park, Auckland, bing, ding. You ever been on University Challenge? No. Oh, Okay. They should bring that back. I really like University Challenge. You should see Rose Swears, Waikato, absolute rock star. Anyway, Emily, thank you very much. Thank you.
Waikato, Swears. Bohemia is a region Czech, of what country? Czech, the Czech. Yeah, okay, Czech Republic. Yes. Armida, Rosalka and the Jacobin are operas by which Czech composer? Try Dvorak. Nominate Swears. Dvorak? Dvorak is correct. Yes! <laughs> Curiosity not only killed the cat, it spawned a whole radio show. Graham Hill's Weekend Variety Wireless on Radio Live. Astronomy Today with Dr. Grant Christie. Hello, Grant. How are you? Hello, Graham. Good night. All right. As usual, we have some helpful and enlightening, further enlightening, uh, links on the Weekend Variety Wireless webpage. If you go there, it says click here for this weekend's rundown. And pretty near the top, uh, there is the thing about what's on uh, astronomy today. And there's a link to this um, Os uh, Bennu, this asteroid Bennu, to go to Bennu and back. And this is, it's beautifully put together. Yeah. It, it's like, oh, why bother? Now they've made the movie. <laughs> why bother going there? This well, is going to get some stuff from an asteroid and bring it back. That's right. Uh, well, this is NASA's mission. We've talked a bit about the Japanese uh, mission to... Uh, um, it's... Uh, Ryugu. Ryugu. Uh, it's a little asteroid. Uh, the NASA one is closing in now on its target. It's now actually imaged it with its camera, so it's still a long way away. It's still, it's a distance-wise, it's about five times the Earth-Moon separation, so around about two million kilometres away. And through their telescope, it's just a, a little faint star, uh, which, well, it looks like a faint star, but that's, mm. uh, so they can't see any detail on it at this time, so they don't really have any idea what it looks like. So, uh, as they get closer, we're going to get more and more detailed images over the next few months. And um, in late, the latter part of December, they'll be gently moving into orbit. And this object is only about, or it's thought to be about half a, me half a kilometre across, 500 metres. So it's much smaller uh, than any other object that uh, mankind's been able to put in a, a spacecraft into orbit around. Because mm. um, the one, uh, Ryugu, is, uh, Ryugu is about... Um, bit over a kilometre. Oh. So this is... Uh, Half like, that. And its gravity is going to be about an eighth of that. So, oh, you know, right. It's sort of... Uh, it's, it's tiny. Its gravity is extremely weak, so they have to approach it very carefully and slowly, and <laughs> it'll be a very delicate process to get into orbit. But Yeah, uh, and they'll be using the calculations of Isaac Newton. He will do for this, won't he? Uh, yeah, pretty much. He'll do fine for it. Yeah. And Kepler... Yeah, Kepler and, and Kepler. I just like to yell back into the past, well done. Yeah, <laughs> yeah wouldn't they get a kick out of this? Wouldn't they just? <laughs> really? Yeah, well, I mean, we're, we're lucky. I mean, c consider this, that, you know, all of all the, you know, billions and billions of people that have lived on, uh, millions certainly, on the planet Earth, and uh, we happen to be living at the time where we're seeing all these things the first yeah. time. Um, there'll only be a first time. After this, it'll be sort of more passe. Mm. Um, but, uh, you know, seeing comets up close and landing things on comets and taking samples from them. So the NASA's uh, mission, OSIRIS-REx, it's going to spend about a year or more mapping the surface of this object, just orbiting around. Um, they've got a lot of instruments on board, and then they're going to send down a a probe to the surface that's going to grab a decent chunk of the surface and just go straight off again because uh, they're not going to... It'll be too difficult to stop 
the gravity's so weak, so they'll just go down, grab and go. And they're hoping to get between 60 grams minimum and up to 2,000 grams, two kilos of material. That's a lot. Wow. That's prime, primordial material that the solar system was built of. And then bring that back to Earth. It'll take a while. To get, I think in 2023 it's going to be um, the, that capsule will get back to Earth and uh, they'll start analysing. And that, they'll be using that stuff for generations. That's the, one of the trickiest bits, getting it back here through the atmosphere. And that's what happened to the Japanese attempt, didn't it? Didn't it just... F- Fell uh, no, they actually the the um, the Hayabusa the in fact you know the, they've they've actually been analysing particles from that they, but all it managed to bring back was a few micrograms oh, millionths right. of grams just tiny little particles they didn't even know there was anything in the canister. It took them a year or two to figure out that there were particles there. And oh. finally, they've identified several thousand particles that were actually inside that, but invisible to the eye. And uh, they're now you know, publishing work. In fact, uh, just recently, they've been publishing stuff about uh, what those particles tell them about how that object formed in the first place. Right. So even micrograms, tiny particles you couldn't see with your eye, right. are a valuable uh, science. But, but a few course, grams so, up. But, you know, we're talking about a couple of kilos potentially from right. OSIRIS-REx uh, and, and also they're going to be getting stuff from um, Ryugu, the Japanese spacecraft as well. So okay. the, over the next few years there's going to be a revolution in our understanding of how the solar system formed because this is the stuff that built the planets. Where is OSIRIS-REx right now? It's about uh, around about um, two million kilometres from its target. Okay. Um, Great uh, name, isn't being, it? Oh, sorry, sorry, yes, it is. Um, and uh, <laughs> um, and it's I say it's going to just be creeping closer and closer to its target. So we'll we'll, we'll talk about it again, and you know probably in a, another month or two they'll be putting up some sort of better pictures. Great. At the moment they're hoping it's a nice regular object. Not uh, not sort of some sort of weird potato-shaped thing, um, because that would uh, really complicate their ability to manoeuvre around it and land on the surface. If Wouldn't it, they know that just by the changing brightness of it? Yeah, they can do, but it's not a it's 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 not a done deal. I mean, oh. just like um, Ryugu is a sort of kind of funny shape too, but you couldn't have told that from a distance. Okay. All right, um, and yeah, go have a look at the uh, film of what it's done and what it's doing because it's so beautifully rendered. That's on the Weekend Variety Wireless webpage. Alright, also we have a gorgeous picture by one of New Zealand's foremost astrophotographers you would have to say, wouldn't you? Rolf, Rolf Olsen um, and it's to do with this uh, Beta Pictoris P and its weirdness. It's a star. Yeah, it's a, well it's actually Beta Pictoris B is actually a uh, a planet but uh, yeah so, so this is a young this is a young star that's only you know probably well less they th- think around about 20 million years old so very very young hasn't you know formed recently and it's still got all the dusty stuff around it um, and famously uh, it uh, they detected, uh, well, proved in about 2009 that there was actually a, a massive planet orbiting in that st- uh, dusty disk. That it's still got its sort of birth disk around it, if you like, which is kind of like almost call it the placenta mm-hmm. around the yeah. around the uh, star and the, this massive planet that had formed. And and what uh, the, that dusty disk was really only 
imaged properly in the, about 2006 or seven, mm-hmm. um, and then uh, Rolf Olsen, uh, who's a very uh, skilled uh, Auckland amateur astronomer, does fantastic astrophotography work, um, came up with a very clever way. Nobody had ever tried it before, just talked about it, nobody had ever done it. So he was the first that did it, of, of actually taking pictures of the star Beta Pictoris, which is, in, as you can see with your naked eye, um, but he sh- blocked out the brightness of the star and pr- actually showed this dusty disc around the star Beta Pictoris, which was considered ridiculously impossible with a telescope that only had an aperture of less than... Uh, oh. It was around about um, 20 centimetres. So it's, it's just, oh, no, 25 centimetres. Just a, a, you know, a good backyard telescope. Wow. And, uh, well, take a bow roll. Well, it was, uh, it was astounding achievement. And, and you can uh, see that, um, that image is what we've got up on the webpage, and that's very much like... It's like looking at our solar system in its young days. That's right. It's what our solar system would have looked like, and we think all solar systems look like. They start off with a star with a dusty disk around them, and the planets form within that dusty disk, and gradually the disk, the, all the uh, dust gets, most of it gets accumulated into planets uh, or potentially blown away by the light of the star if the star's very bright. Mm. So it's, uh, yeah, no, it's um, really quite important. So the, this... This planet that they've detected in the disk, uh, Beta Pictoris, they've known about that for a while. They, first of all, they detected it by seeing that there was a, a strange gap in the disk um, and figured that that must have been carved out by a planet. And then they identified the planet for certain um, big telescopes. Uh, and uh, they've been studying this planet ever since, trying to get an idea. It's obviously a very massive object, um, but the mass could be anywhere between four times that of Jupiter. Jupiter's a massive planet, by the mm. way, very massive planet, uh, but four times Jupiter up to maybe 30 times Jupiter, which would make it a, more of a brown dwarf than a planet. Right, so these things big, almost turn on. Yeah, these they? are more like a failed star, right. and it would be in that range. So that was the uncertainty. Um, but uh, new studies that have just been published... Uh, narrow the mass down and it's, it's pretty close to being about 11 times Jupiter, which is still a very massive object. It's just on the border between where astronomers would talk about planet or, or is it a sort of a low mass brown dwarf or is it a very heavy planet? So at the moment it's being called a planet um, but uh, that's uh, uh, a big, really big object. So they can now, they've now that's important to actually be able to sort of understand that and also the and a lot of that new science was done using the Gaia satellite by measuring the wobble of Beta Pictoris itself. They, mm. they were able to measure the mass of the planet uh, using the Gaia satellite's exquisite measurements that have just been published. Mm. So uh, that's a big thumbs up for Gaia. There'll be a lot more to come. And Gaia's going to find a lot more planets around other stars as well because it detects the, the tiny wobble in the stars caused by the planets and it can measure those star positions with exquisite precision, much higher than anything ever before. Uh, and so, and it's measuring sort of 1.7 billion stars in the sky. Not all of them will be used for planet detection, but a lot of the closer ones will be. And uh, from that tiny wobble it's caused in the stars by their planets going around, huh. will, um, yeah, as Jupiter goes around the sun, it pulls the sun slightly one way or the other. The Earth, far less so, because it's not as massive. Yeah. All right. Um, oh, and do we have to rewind for the Japanese um, little bit of asteroid stuff because they found the absolute age of the thing? Yes, this is, um, you know, the, the age of the asteroid 
um, has now been uh, narrowed down. In fact, that, that's the uh, asteroid uh, Itakawa, um, which Hayabusa visited, and they oh. brought these tiny samples back. But yes, they managed to um, get some uh, constraints on the age of it um, and its history. So basically, it it formed uh, around about 4.6 billion years ago when the other stuff in the solar system formed. That wasn't a great surprise, particularly. Uh, but it's this is, again, primordial material. This was stuff that predated the existence of the sun at all. Right. Uh, it came from interstellar space, and uh, it was built up from those particles, so it'll be very important uh, understanding the chemistry of that. But also it has... Um, uh, undergone a big collision as well. That's the other thing. Just by looking at the tiny particles and microcrystals in these things, you know, what geochemists can draw out of these studies is just outstanding. Um, and so it underwent a collision about one and a half billion years ago that uh, changed, again, left a chemical imprint, I guess, in these samples, and uh, and that sort of shattered it and sort of smashed up. And the, the will, they will eventually find other bits from that collision. I mean, they can now, once they know that, they can start looking for other um, asteroids that uh, could have come from a collision at that time. They right. can wind time backwards in their computer models of the solar system and finally work out that, or oh, these, this, say, dozen other asteroids will all have come from that same original impact. So, um, fascinating stuff. All right. And I oh, sort of discussed that when we were discussing the other thing. Uh, clumsy of me, my fault. Uh, apologies. But uh, you got the information. Now, let's talk about Jupiter. Uh, rewinding back to that planet. Um, growth disorders... In its adolescence, apparently. Yeah, well, they're now talking about our giant planet, Jupiter, mm. um, and uh, it's generally thought that it was probably the first planet, all the models show, uh, when the sun's planetary family was starting to form and a dusty disk around the young sun, uh, Jupiter would have been the first one to start. They've now been able to, um, without going through final details, but there was the first growth spurt occurred when basically shingle-sized pebbles started to accumulate into a clump. And once a clump got to a certain size, the gravity of that clump started to bring in more and more and more. And so there's quite... And it happened to be at just the right part where there was plenty of this material, right distance from the sun where there's plenty of this material to grow, mm. um, just out beyond where water would be frozen. So if you went away from the sun... If you're too close to the sun, you, you don't you can't have ice. But if you get out far enough out, then you get to the point where you, water will exist a, as ice, and ice is very sticky, and so that ex allows things to stick together reasonably quickly and easily. And that's where why we have big planets all form beyond what we call the snow line in the solar system. And that for us, that means Jupiter, Saturn, Uranus mm. and Neptune all lie beyond that. And you, inside of that, you only get terrestrial planets because the water has all been evaporated away and, and as a gas and it's dispersed. Huh. So so that they uh, certainly under, uh, that's been understood for a while. But this by analysing Jupiter... In this new way, what they've found is, and coupled with computer models, is that Jupiter grew relatively quickly to be about um, around about 50 times the mass of Earth. At the mo well, at the moment, it's 300 times the mass of the Earth. So that was just the start of its growth spurt. Um, then it then things paused, 
Um, and part of the reason for that was uh, because it should have got to that size and then start pulling in gas because there was gas there. And once you get to a, uh, up to about 50 times the mass of the Earth, then the gravity is strong enough that it'll pull in gas and then there's a, a rapid build-up of the mass. Of, there's a lot of gas left over from the formation of the star, so the planet grows really fast. But that didn't happen with Jupiter. There was clearly there was a pause oh. in Jupiter's growth uh, and they... The reason for that, as they've now discovered, is that uh, when it was a sort of a, a big clump of pebbles, basically, uh, with quite a bit of gravity, because it's 50 times the mass of the Earth, and that became the new core of Jupiter. That's the stuff, the, the chemistry of that stuff is probably what's right in the centre of Jupiter today. Mm. Uh, but that uh, that growth spurt um, came to a halt because it started to get hit by other small asteroids. Once you instead of when you're growing just by accumulating shingle and pebbles, then there's not a lot of heat. That's just gently coming together. But then the next th things that start to hit you are, are small asteroids that may be a kilometre across, five kilometres across, that sort of size. They start banging into this. They deliver a hell of a lot of heat and energy. As we know, if one hit the Earth, there'd be this huge amount of energy released. The same thing was happening to this sort of embryonic Jupiter early mm. in its history. Mm -hmm. uh, so... <clears throat> So that the heating of that of this baby Jupiter, if you like, uh, infant Jupiter, meant that the the gas was too hot to condense and be pulled in. So there was a pause while that heat slowly dissipated away, um, and then it was able to start pulling in the gas. And once that happened, its growth re went rapidly from 50 times the mass of the Earth up to what it's now around the uh, 300 uh. times the mass of the Earth. And there would have been some sort of similar process happening a bit further out with Saturn as well. Saturn only grew to about 100 Earths, so it never got as big as Jupiter because Jupiter was at the, the hot spot of the solar system, the best place to be to, if you want to be big. Um, just where the the density was such that that's where we're going to get a massive planet forming. Okay. Um, now, tiny spacecraft breaking out of Earth's orbit. You're not talking about Voyager. We're saying goodbye to that. We're talking about smaller things. Yes, these are these are these like these little cubesats. Oh yeah. Essentially, I mean, at the moment we've talked about these cubesats. These are things that are fit inside about a ten uh, about a bit around about a ten centimeter cube. Um, sort of four inches or thereabouts, mm -hmm. um, and they're very cheap to do. They're you know people like the Rubik's group. cube. Yeah, I mean it's it's a bit like a big version of Rubik's cube, and oh. you can pack a lot of electronics into that little cube, and they're relatively cheap to launch. You can put you know a dozen of them onto one launch, and when it gets in the uh, spacecraft gets out beyond the orbit, uh, the atmosphere, then they just pop these things out the side of the spacecraft with a little spring-loaded launcher. Into, and they go into orbit around the Earth. Well, that, that's fine. They're, they're going to you know, provide all sorts of new ways of looking at the Earth from space. But in addition, what, they knew, this, what we're talking about here, though, is the fact that these can be used for interplanetary projects. Um, there's two already on their way to Mars. Which, no. Yes, there are. Um, there's a InSight, Mars's InSight uh, lander, which is going to Mars. It's going to land on Mars in December and uh, its object is to study the interior of Mars. It's not going to be driving around on the surface. It'll just be staying put in one place um, and listening and learning what the interior is like. But in order for it to, for them to control the landing of that, that spacecraft, very valuable spacecraft on the surface, it's very tricky landing heavy things on Mars because the atmosphere is so thin. Uh, and in order to get proper radio communication, they've sent these two little small 
equivalents of a CubeSat. They're a little bit bigger than a CubeSat, but they're still sort of like a small case. Mm -hmm. These spacecraft are on their way to Mars, and they will be arriving at Mars along with InSight and provide radio communications ah. to ensure that, you know, you had that sort of 15 minutes of terror yeah, yeah. when they were landing Curiosity, yeah. uh, where there was a blackout. Well, they won't have the blackout with these... Oh. little satellites doing the communication. But they won't be stopping either. They'll just go flying on past Mars. Their job's done at that point. But So the next job will be to figure out how to get, in the future missions, get those spacecraft to get to Mars and then get into orbit. To do that, you have to carry fuel, and fuel is heavy. So they're looking at all sorts of clever ways to provide very lightweight uh, methods of um, providing propulsion of these things so that they can be slowed down and caught by gravity at the other end. Mm. All right, if you've seen the movie Contact uh, or read the book by Carl Sagan, it's a good read actually, it's a bit different from the movie, but whatever. Uh, Arecibo Observatory in Puerto Rico, uh, that's um, a famous radio telescope that was involved uh, in its start in that. It's had a $6 million upgrade. Yeah, well, it got hammered in the big um, hurricane that uh, badly damaged everything in Puerto Rico, uh, and the the big uh, radio telescope took a, a quite a few hits as well. Did it fill um, full of water? It's basically a dish. <laughs> I like to think they got a plug at the bottom. Of, oh. of I don't know. <laughs> Good point. <laughs> but I think there must be. I think they'll have thought of that, Graham. <laughs> right. Wondering, pull out the dinghy and roll <laughs> row out to the middle of it. Yeah. So it's basically a big sort of valley where they're built this radio telescope um, and it's the the biggest uh, well China's now built a bigger similar one uh, which isn't fully operational yet but so the Arecibo one though has undergone a number of refits and uh, so it's been repaired and they've also um, spending quite a bit of money upgrading its uh, receiver, the thing that's actually at the focus of this dish, which mm -hmm. is what receives the radio signals. This is going to hugely improve its uh, capabilities, um, and uh, which is great considering that you know the the um, science found National Science Foundation, in the USA, was planning to pull the plug on it because uh, of the cost of running it. But now some universities have come to the party and mm. providing some money to keep it going. And so they're doing a massive upgrade of its uh, receiver, the, the part that actually receives the signals that bounce off the dish from space. And that's going to give them a much bigger field of view. Instead of just looking out into space and seeing a tiny little piece of sky, they'll be able to see a lot more of the sky oh, in cool. one shot. And so very efficient. Uh, it'll mean far more data are being obtained. Um, and uh, they're going to... It's primary targets probably going to be looking for pulsars mm -hmm. um and uh that's that's a big thing in radio astronomy mm. um and uh well, yeah, you so never know it might find um et it might do you know no we're getting more chances if you've got a bigger field of view true um and i suppose it may be seen by uh the locals as a bit of scientific indulgence when they got hammered pretty badly but Yes, uh, you've well, got to be able to do both of these things, don't you? Yeah, well, uh, the last reports were something like sort of just under three thousand people were killed in that uh, mm. that uh, huge storm, uh, which is appalling when you think about well, that. By the results of it as well. Yes, yeah. and the aftermath of it, mm. and uh, so yeah, so that's right. I mean, I don't sure what the locals think about that spending that money, but uh, mm. on the radio telescope, that's true. All right. Um, well, no, that's an interesting subject to, to broach, like the India's space program. People were up and arms saying, we've got poverty, why do you want this? And I think it does, you want to do, you don't want to shut down no. all of your aspirations for high-end study 
until everybody's got something to eat because you want to aspire to something. It's it's okay to have something to eat, but you don't want to just have something to eat and live in a society that doesn't have a curiosity. You don't want to walk around as a well-fed, lobotomized person. No, well, in fact, you know, obviously, you know, and it's, we we all know this now that observations from space about your country can tell you a huge amount about your country and allow yeah. you to manage things in a much better way that's better for everybody. It uh, has a, that a sort of effect. So, you know, India is a country that needs to be uh, watching yeah. a lot of its environmental problems yeah. and so on, which will affect uh, large numbers of people. Okay. Oh, has anyone heard from Opportunity, the little rover that could? <laughs> no, Spirit's no, brother? they haven't. There's... Um, Almost a suggestion. I mean, there's some different hashtags started up for wake up Oppie and save Oppie. Oh, Oppie, that's Oppie, nice. Oppie's got this sort of uh, this cult of followers because um, it's been there 15 years and, and people sort of personalise these yeah. things. They, they, you know, almost sort of at the point of sort of trying to twist NASA's arm to arrange a sort of a rescue mission to go there and sort of <laughs> give it a, a new battery or... Right. Bring it home. Yeah. So <laughs> give it a proper burial. Nothing. The thought of it just sitting there, sort yeah. of dead as a dodo, doesn't really appeal to some well, folks. It's nice that it does tear in our <laughs> heartstrings, but um, it's done well for what it was built for. Uh, and I think we've well, got re- such a huge public following, though NASA couldn't ever pull a plug on it. No. I think we mentioned that before too. That they. Yeah. So the, uh, I think you know there might be people in NASA so hoping that they don't hear another little peep. <laughs> yeah, but we're still waiting, and um, it may be covered in dust, it may be dead forever, we just don't know. And when I say we, as usual, with astronomy, I mean they. That's right. Thanks, Grant. <laughs> Thanks, Graham. Life, the universe, and everything in between. Graham Hill's Weekend Variety Wireless on Radio Live. Just a reminder, the web links that we uh, were discussing with Grant Christie, available on the Weekend Variety Wireless webpage. And if you're there, uh, we try and make it as easy and plain as possible for everyone. You can email from there and there's a big yellow banner that says click here for this weekend's lineup. And that will give you, guess what, this weekend's lineup tomorrow night. Um, one of the stars of Mrs. Krishnan's Diary, the Indian Ink Theatre Company. And I do ask... The obvious elephant in the room question, or it would have been a month or two ago, what do they make of Apu from The Simpsons? Okay, new sport and weather coming up shortly. And in the next hour, Max Cryer will be answering your questions on words, their origin and meaning. You can ask Max, ask Max a question, anything to do with that subject, uh, by just emailing from the webpage as well. Why is a pope a pope? And who was the first person to say hunky-dory? I don't think it was David Bowie, but he did do a lovely album called Hunky Dory. I just listened to it the other day because talking with Max, it reminded me of Hunky Dory. Holy mackerel, it's a wonderfully put together thing. Go and put it on at once. Forget about this show, go and have a listen to David Bowie. Uh, James Crute, though, in the next hour, having a look at a couple of biopics. McQueen, not Steve, and McKellen. <laughs> 